This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to Doing Translational Research. I'm your host, Tony Burrow, director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Today, I'm honored to be joined by our guest, Dr. Jamian P. Cunningham, who is an assistant professor in the Brooks School of Public Policy at Cornell University. His research currently consists of four broad overarching themes focusing on the intersectionality of institutional discrimination, access to social justice, crime and criminal justice, and race and economic inequality. Dr. Cunningham held previous positions in economics at the University of Memphis and at Portland State University, where he taught urban economics, econometrics, labor economics, and economics of discrimination. There's just so much economy happening in this introduction, and we are grateful and fortunate to benefit from his expertise on economics here at Cornell University. So welcome, Dr. Cunningham. Thank you for having me. So one of the first things we like to do is invite you to better characterize, in your own words, what it is that you do. And I think the way I'd like to frame this is if you could help our listeners understand what is the big question or questions that your work and your program of research is is aiming to answer. I guess I wouldn't say I have a big research question. Um, I would say I have like a research goal. And that's kind of to link policies from the 1960s and 1970s to the current economic condition or socioeconomic condition uh, of Black Americans. And so as you kind of went over like the intersectionalities of, of my research agenda, it's basically I study like the big programs from, from, from this time period. So I look at the war on poverty and some of the programs and look at short and long run outcomes. And I look at the war on drugs in the 1980s. And I also look at racial disparities um, in police contact and the policies that may have contributed to that or or lessened uh, 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 those interactions over time. So basically, it's like we know there's a lot of things that the government tried to do in the 1960s and 1970s. What do we know about them? And then what can we say about uh, policy recommendations today, Uh, especially as we think about things such as racial inequality, as we think about uh, the Black Lives Matter social movement, there's a series of recommendations that these activists and community organizations organizations have that are rooted in some of the policies in the 1960s and 1970s. And we just don't have the evidence now to say police does X, Y, and Z. What are the outcomes? Well, the police have been doing this for a while. Let's see when this first starts to happen. Can we glean some kind of uh, uh, new understanding um, for policy recommendations going forward? I see. I see. So, you know, something is jarred loose for me in thinking about that, the, the scale at which you're approaching this and and your work you know tethers together you know, previous decades with contemporary experiences um it might be helpful i think about our our listeners to to give us an idea um i'm trying to think how to ask this but what is the view of economics into these issues is it trying to understand the broad strokes sort of Um, economic policy impacts, or does it get down to the individual level experiences or community level of experiences? But what what is the lens by which, or what is the lens through which economics tends to treat these issues and these topics? Well, there's two slash 
three things I guess I can say here. Okay. One, economics gives us a set of tools to do policy evaluation, right? Just in general, right? We have a set of statistical tools and also a theory in which we can use to kind of get more causal mechanisms. Instead of saying there's an association here, we can use economic theory and we can use some different data analytics to say we can identify such an, an effect. So this is just general in economics. As it relates to economics and, and racial inequality, well, economics is not necessarily the strongest or the best place to kind of have these conversations and the profession is trying to figure uh, figure this out. But the, the third thing, and because I said two to three things, the third thing is I also have a historical lens. And the historical lens allows me to not just say, okay, there's economic theory, there's these new tools that we can use, but law, uh, history, sociology, all of these different disciplines have had this conversation and had it over time. <laughs> and so not only is it rooted in historical analysis from different professions, there's just the history in itself of why these things came to be. So we think about recommendations dealing with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter social movement. And they said, well, we want to get rid of police unions. And then they say, well, what do we do to find that out? And someone may say, well, look at the places that have police unions and look at police killings today. What do you see? And you might get mixed evidence, right? I can say, well, we know that there's a period where police wasn't able to organize in such a way. We can see the introduction of police unions. We can see the introduction of collective bargaining. We can see when and where unions start to prop up in and of itself. And then see, do we see changes in police behavior? And I can use the theories and the tools to kind of say what might be driving the decision. So we efficiency wages, certain protections and benefits that may improve the marginal productivity of policing and so forth and so on, right? So I can couch this in economic theory while using these tools and also say like, we know what happened when, so this is likely a precipitating event to these outcomes that we see today. But then I have to be careful because it's a historical analysis. So I can't say, well, if you got rid of unions, it will, this will happen now. But I can say if we kind of think about these policies and the nuance of these policies, we do we can say something about the contributing factor of which, like, say, unions uh, play in racial disparities and, and police violence and police killings of civilians. So, so as suspected, it's, it's an intricate toolkit that you bring to bear to these questions. It certainly involves economics and policy and history, and the blending of them sort of, sort of produces sort of new emergent insights with a degree of caution about what each on its own is telling you and all of that. But, it, but it's such an interesting and sophisticated sort of approach to thinking about these issues that are clearly pressing and, and, and important. Um, you, you spoke about recommendations and 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 I wonder if that sort of is a nice segue to a question about whether you involve community agencies or stakeholders or non-academic stakeholders in your research process and and if so what has that experience been like for you I I do and I don't so in a sense that I try my best to be an independent researcher, uh, especially as it relates to thinking about police contact and racial disparities. There's a lot of stakeholders. And I and I have my own experience with police. And so I try to make sure I don't clout that, you know, I try to stay objective, even though I'm not. I try to, to the best of best of my, my abilities. However, I'm thinking about policing. So I want to talk to police officers. I also want to talk to activists because there might be different questions. Like I might be asking the wrong question or there might be different lenses in which I should view the problem. Um, I also do work on, like as I mentioned, on the, on the war on poverty, specifically the legal service program. And I'm reading books about this program. 
Uh, but when I have an opportunity to talk to someone who actually worked in one of these neighborhood law firms, it provides a, a totally different uh, perspective. And then as it relates to translating the my research findings right to the broader conversation, that's definitely uh, mostly involved, you know, partnering or at least meeting with different organizations and agencies to kind of say this is what we're finding. Maybe or maybe not, it might, you know, help or inform on your work going forward. You mentioned the different kinds of stakeholders that are in and around the work that you do. Can you illuminate a kind of challenge or opportunity, if it makes more sense to take it that from that perspective, but give us some context around what it's like translating findings or uh, engaging with communities or stakeholders in the process of doing your work? So first, depending on the research question, different agencies or organizations will be hesitant to work with you. I.e., if I'm thinking about racial disparities in police contact, the police might be, ah, you know, yeah. we. Yeah. Or if I have an outcome and the finding is counterintuitive to what even I thought yeah. or other people may think, they might be like, you know, what is this? What are you doing? What you know? So in a, in a sense, it. Different agencies and organizations have different agendas, right? And my agenda as a researcher is basically to try my best to answer a question that may be relevant. And sometimes if it's counterintuitive or something that you wasn't, wasn't expecting, put it in the proper context to say, this is why. And it matters, right, for, for policy. If we're saying that X is caused, like we're rooting for or advocating for X. And yes, X might be an outcome, but it's really because of Y and Y is also doing all these other things. We need to know because we need the, the proper policy, regardless of you know how people may feel, or, uh, how you know arguments that have been made over many years. And so, yes, it can kind of get, you know, one foot in one door, one foot in another door. I want to make people as happy as possible, not happy as possible, <laughs> but informed as possible. But also try not to get, you know, as many daggers thrown at me as well. Um, but also I would say this too, and this is just, I'm an only child. So a part of one of the things I like when I find counterintuitive results is that I just... I, I I don't want to be like in one camp all the time. It's like something something else. Like we all can't be agreeing. There must be something else happening that maybe for some odd reason I see it here and, and you don't. And then then the question is hopefully I'm doing this right. Right. And so um in most of my work, um, I try to be cautious about interpreting uh, my findings, regardless of what I may believe a group or organization or agency uh, wants. And then the last thing I would say here is that I also try to make sure that my work is not tied to particular funding agencies in the sense that they are looking for a certain outcome. Um, and therefore, you know, they may, you might work with different organizations to get information and then you get certain results and it's like, thank you, but you can't put that out there because you're tied to a particular agency and that can create problems too. I haven't had that issue um, yet. And that's one of the things I'm looking to avoid. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask, is that, is that difficult for anyone doing research? Funding is, is, is vital. It, it's the kind of support that you would need to kind of push an agenda forward. Has it been difficult to, to balance that of, of both acquiring research funding to do the work, but, but also trying to be mindful to, not accept funds from organizations that may expect a particular result. Has that been difficult or? Not not yet, at least, um, okay. for me, as far as okay. the organizations that I have been 
somewhat funded by and you know most of my i mean most of my funding honestly has been from universities and some found foundations major foundations but there has been some work with some smaller um organizations and foundation that's provided a little bit of you know of uh, 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 funds to answer or to dive into particular questions it's like if i'm doing this you know it's these are the outcomes. This is, you know, what will be put out there. And I'm trying to avoid having those type of, you know, conversations where the agency has goals. And I understand everyone has, you know, particular goals and agendas and objectives. But I also have a, a goal and objective as to produce research and foreign policy and also hopefully get, get tenure one day as well. So hopefully lead to papers that are published. So some compelling and hopefully sort of, uh, collaborative goals that you have, uh, hopefully they conspire and they work well for you. Um, but, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, so given the, the broad areas of interest that you have and the work that you do, I would ask you to try to distill for us, um, thinking about these areas in which you work, what are some sort of big ticket items that, that you think the general public should know about or, or really understand? Can you sort of distill for us what are the big takeaways that you'd really like us to to know about your work? So one of the main takeaways is that policy matters and, and not in the sense of the way we would like for or we imagine the policy to impact the lives uh, of people daily, but in, in, in ways that are off, often unintended um, in the sense that it has to do with the way that the, the, the policies are uh, implemented um, in the sense uh, one of the programs that I studied is a legal service program from uh, the War on Poverty in the 1960s. And this program basically funded local community-based organizations to start neighborhood law firms. And what we found out is that these lawyers often sued welfare offices and departments, basically liberalizing um, access to public assistance, AFDC, um, which is which is it's going to improve the lives of individuals who are being discriminated against, right? Who are being denied access to public assistance that now can happen, but it's also going to change the behavior of subsequent people. Right. And so what we show is that yes, the program increased the number of individuals who have access to public assistance, but it also increased non-marital births. It also led to a, 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 a increase in single parent households right in these communities and so these are the, the the individuals who promoted and put together the program were thinking about you know going to court and having someone represent you right and you're being denied benefits but no one was thinking about the other things that may come from from it mm-hmm. right and then then, mm-hmm. then the question which we don't tackle is this good or 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 bad what in the sense we say in the paper obviously individuals being discriminated against who have access to a public good and being denied access to the public good are made better off but then it's like okay this is a bigger picture and what can we say and so when we say policy matters right it's like yes the policy the intended purpose of that policy matters but also the other you know, actions and consequences from that policy matters as well. And sometimes we need to think uh, uh, bigger about, you know, implications from said legislation or funding purposes. So that, that sounds like a real tricky issue. Um, do you, what are, what is an actionable insight into that? Is it simply to be aware that, that policy matters, but you really got to both read the fine print and then play a kind of storyboard out the downstream implications of this. It, like, is there, is there a solution to that? Is it just being sort of better, more thoughtful about 
the the ramifications of policy, or is there sort of an obvious, a more obvious um, tool or resource that we can start to help people better understand of thinking through things? I'm just trying to think of how do we help people understand there's a policy as stated, as you as you pointed out, but there's also the policy as lived. How do we get out of that conundrum to help people? I I, I think as it as it relates to like policy implement implementation, right? It's sometimes you're trying to treat uh, the cough instead of the reason why someone got the cold. Okay. Um, and okay. sometimes when you, when you, when you, when you, you try to attack the, the symptoms, right? You may stop the person from coughing, but the person will huh. go back outside because they don't have a jacket. <laughs> They're going to get sick again. <laughs> um, it, and it. so sometimes we either have to think of not necessarily a policy, but a collection of policies uh, that address the root the root causes um, and this is and then we're human and we will error and there will always be unintended consequences for things um but in a sense we probably need to think of policies that are are structural and, and at the root in nature uh, and not necessarily uh dealing with some of you know, responding being reactive yeah. to things yeah. that are going on right you know, like with the legal services the, the assumption is that, right, the poor people, they don't have lawyers when they go to court, right? So we're going to give them lawyers instead of saying, no, they're poor. <laughs> so let's deal with, with the poverty and, and creating more opportunities uh, for them. That, it's, just, it's just a brilliant insight into the complexity of, of issues and when and how any constituency or stakeholders might start to look at and examine a problem or issue. Um, um, Intentions aside, you can imagine people wanting to show up, develop policies that do push on an issue, but without fuller understanding of what's happening here, they may miss the mark. They may not get deep enough into sort of really solving things. And so ultimately, you can imagine creating policies that are essentially just correcting for other policies rather than actually solving problems. And so this is this is such an interesting sort of space to, to be doing work in. I, I, I can I, I feel that in, in your description. If there were one real world change you could make based upon your work, what would it be? And it may be difficult to imagine to push you, given the scope and range of your work, but to think about one thing. But if there was one thing you your work could change or show up to to really make a difference in, what would that look like? Uh, that's tough, mainly because I don't think of... I guess I don't, I, you know, when you do research, you don't think of yourself as, as having an outcome or doing a set of, of questions that can have a big change on, 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 on like everyday lives. So the goal is to, but kind of thinking of it in those terms. Um, I guess one thing that I, that, that I would say is, is that, right, if I could, if my research could speak to one thing in particular, it would be the pernicious or deleterious effects of persistent inequality, especially when it's structural in nature. Um, and how to address that, though? I mean, I don't know if I have the answer there, but in the sense, a lot of the conversations that we have as it relates to racial disparities and wealth, because that's the big thing now, or health, or crime, it's all rooted in like this complex, complex 
racial, social history, that you can't separate individual actions that you may or may not like versus the racism that people experience versus the income and decisions that are made as it relates to where they live and the type of jobs that they have. Like we can't separate it. Right. And so if if I would say anything I would like to see changes like dealing with right just the root of some of these disparities is basically uh, uh, tied to right the the long lasting uh, effects of slavery and Jim Crow and second class citizenship. But in a sense, does do I think my research actually gets at all that? Uh, no. Maybe twenty <laughs> years from now, I might have a set of papers that might say something uh, uh, more intelligent about these things. But you know, that's that's like my goal though uh, of of what I'm trying to at least address research wise. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I think that's important to hear. Is what is the goal, and how do you understand the goal, even if now there's some temporal distance from it all being put together in the way that you'd, you'd hope uh, to push on these issues, but to um, um, it's neat to hear researchers think about the big picture, even though the manifestation of any one project may only be a small piece of that, but there's, there is sort of the, the thought you have in mind when you wake up to go after those questions, what was driving that? And to see if it is the 30 year, 40 year plan, what, how do we understand any one of your contributions and where does that sort of live? This may be sort of a twist. So th- those were sort of the collection of questions that we typically ask people, but I'm sort of thinking, what do I really want to ask, especially researchers working on these questions? This may get pushed back into, even though it may be asked now, we may put it back in earlier, but a question I'd like you to get you to think about is you're tackling some big and serious questions that have real ramifications for people's outcomes and life chances and sort of the the experiences they have as they go through go through life. And your contribution to this in this space, at least, is through research. You're, you're conducting studies and analyses trying to understand things. What evidence do you think the world is ultimately waiting on, if anything, that would make a difference. So I think if I could partition the question, it might be, you know, um, do you have a sense of an area of research where it looks really promising? If only we could produce more and better sound evidence in that area, we stand a real chance to move the needle. Or in your own experience, when you've produced evidence in this area, it took us places. Is there something, I look at the nature of the problems and the questions you're dealing with, and, and by almost definition, they are pernicious, they're stubborn, they're, they're enduring problems. So is the world waiting on research evidence to change, to move the needle, or, or something else? But, I, but I'd be curious to get your reflection on what evidence do you think, through its production, stands the greatest chance at really putting a deeper dent in some of these issues? Ah, that's tough. And it's, it's multifaceted in the sense that, A, the research questions that I'm tackling are not new, right? <laughs> and maybe a new approach to these questions, right? A different way to answer and provide hopefully more compelling evidence but they're not new. Like even some of these questions might be new in the field of economics, right? I remember some of the work that I, I started um, 
earlier, it was already published, uh, economics, the, the profession really wasn't checking for, right? Just, you know, things happen, times change, and they're like, people was like, oh, you did this four years ago. Yeah, I did it four years ago. But um, so I, so I would say this, there's a set of questions that have been addressed, but have more rigor to it. There's more data available. So there's different techniques to kind of push these things forward. But I don't, I don't know. It's just, I guess maybe it's my lived experience. I would like to say, right, if we really pushed on this racial wealth gap, because this is some of the, the stuff that is really catching a lot of the headlines. Right. There's some uh, there's some work by uh, a researcher at Princeton, Laura, who has some really compelling work on the racial wage gap and the persistence and how it stalled out since the 1950s. Right, very compelling. And I'm like, maybe that piece of work will will like change people, but maybe not. I don't I don't I don't know. Um, I like to try to be optimistic, um, but the way that research works and the individuals who look at outcomes and and, and there's a set of people who actually read the articles. There's a set of people who use the results from these articles to promote different policies. And then there's a different set of people that may vote. And I don't know if these different groups of people come together to actually affect change in a way that, that we would like to see in a timely manner, right? It seems like it's just a gradual push of a boulder up a hill. And at some point, maybe we'll get to the top. It's interesting. Uh, to think, think about how researchers who are pursuing work understand what the likely contribution of their work will be. And and there's a there's a humbleness I, I detect in your response that we, we don't know. Um, it could be hopeful and optimistic, but but we don't know. Um, but it's it's interesting to, to have folks doing the work characterize where they think the ultimate sort of uh, what walls the work will ultimately push down, I think is an important reflection to, to hear directly from the folks doing the work. So I appreciate that. This was a delightful conversation and we got some really brilliant insights into your thinking and the nature of the work you do. So I want to take a moment and say thank you, Dr. Cunningham, for spending some time with us today. I appreciate you guys uh, you talking with me and, and hopefully uh, the, the benefit to uh, the center and, and the general conversation about translational research. Absolutely. It, indeed, it will, it will be just that. So I would like to thank Dr. Cunningham and thank you for listening to this episode of Doing Translational Research. Please tune in next time.